You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys episode number 43 for Monday the 26th of December 2016. This is the last episode for this year and it's the Boxing Day edition. I hope you've had a wonderful Christmas so far. Here are three things that you need to know about my guest today, who is award-winning novelist Chris Longmuir. Chris is best known for her Dundee crime series featuring DS Bill Murphy. Nightwatcher, the first book in the series, won the Scottish Association of Writers Pitlochry Award and the sequel, Deadwood, won the Dundee International Book Prize as well as the Pitlochry Award. Chris has also self-published a non-fiction book entitled Crime Fiction and the Indie Contribution. I began this week's interview by asking Chris when she first started aspiring to write a book. Well, it took a very, very long time. <laughs> when I was a kid, I re- you know, I, I read, I was, a, I was a fantastic reader, I read everything. Uh, and I always wanted to write. But, you know, when you're a kid in my day and age, writers just, you know, writers were something mystical. You, it wasn't something you could aspire to be. So, basically, I just sat on it for years and years and years. And then I took, I, I saw a, a, a class in the paper. And it was creative writing. And I thought, hmm, I'll have a go at that. So I did that. And after that, I started to write. I I joined a writer's circle after that. It was a new one starting up. I'm one of the founder members. Uh, I didn't found it, but I'm one of the founder members. Uh, I joined that and I started to write. First, it was dire. I mean, the stuff I produced was absolutely awful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I started gradually to get published short stories and articles. And I always thought articles were my poorest form of writing and yet it was the articles I got published more than anything else. I did get the short stories published but the articles were what took off so I did that for quite a number of years and then the old urge came back and I thought "Mm, you know I would kind of like to write a book. So I took it a chapter at a time and I wrote wrote a historical saga. Uh, That's the very first book, uh, A Salt Splash Cradle. It wasn't the first one published, but it was the first book I wrote. And it was a historical saga because most of the articles I wrote were historical. Uh, I'm fascinated by kind of social history, not the kings and queens stuff, you know, the, the... you know, the history you get taught in school, but the social stuff, how the people lived, you know, ordinary people. So I did this saga about the ordinary fishing folk and it, it was not bad. I entered for the RNA... Uh, new new writer competitions. Well, it's not a competition; it's a new writer scheme. Mm. And with that scheme, they read it. They read the book, and then if they liked it, they give it to a second reader and then a third reader. And if the third reader liked it, it went to a publisher. Mine got to the publisher, but that was the year sagas went out of fashion. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. I know. So saga writers were losing their contracts. Who was going to take on a new one? Yeah. So it went in the drawer. You know, well, bottom drawer means the hard disk of my computer. <laughs> so I sat on that one and I thought, well, that, that hasn't taken off. They're out of fashion. I'll try a historical crime. So I wrote a historical crime. Now, that one won another competition. It was a 
research by a, uh, a new publishing company called Creme de la Crime. Oh, yes, yes. And they were looking for the best 20 unpublished crime writers in the world. And I was one of the 20. Ooh, that, that's nice. <laughs> but I didn't really like working with them all that much. I mean, I had four different editors in the space of three months. And each one gave me different advice and made me do different things to the books. And you weren't allowed to argue. You know, you had to do it. So I did it. And I, I spoiled the book. I ruined it. So at the end of the day, I didn't go, you know, I, I waited my time out for the contract because the contract said if they uh, either published you within a year or you were free of the contract. But if you came out of the contract before the year was up, you had to pay them £500 for the editing. Crikey. Well, there's so I, mm -hmm, I felt four editors wasn't worth £500, so I waited my time out and just left. There's so much to explore in there. Let me just, I'm going to wind back a little bit because you said that when you started with the, the writing group uh, and you, your, yes. your first days, um, that you were a bad writer and then you'd written a lot of articles and then you, you were winning competitions. You were getting attention pretty well straight yes. away. So did you cut yeah. your teeth writing articles and what did you learn from writing articles? Well, I think... That was my apprenticeship, I think. I, I, I learned a lot about writing. I learned a lot about editing. I learned what editors were looking for. I learned about the markets, uh, which is totally different from books, of course. Mm. Uh, so I, I did learn a lot during that process. And I published in this country, and I also published in America, um, a magazine called The Highlander. Mm-hmm. So, so that was okay. But as I say, they were mostly historical articles and social history. You know, as I say, not the kings and queens. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's quite a move then when you go from, from historical uh, items to, to fiction. The discipline is, is different altogether, isn't it? Yes, but I was still in historical, remember, at the beginning. Mm, yes. Yes. Um, so, basically, I'd done my two historical books which didn't really get published. I think Penguin said of the death game, uh, they liked it, but not 110%. <laughs> and I never knew how to get that extra 10%. Mm. <laughs> but anyway, when the historical crime flopped, because I'd ruined it with creme de la crime, I decided, okay, I'll change direction again. And I wrote a contemporary crime novel. That was Nightwatcher. Uh, again, when that one was finished, it went round all the the agents and the publishers and all very nice, what, I think what you call rave rejections. <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard that before, but I like that. Have you never heard I that? I haven't heard that one yet. No, no, I like oh. it though. And, and, and a, a rejection is no thanks or, you know, just a kind of single line. But a rave rejection is when they actually write a couple of paragraphs and say, we like this, but, you know. Which is even more hurtful in many ways, isn't I it? I know. <laughs> uh, one agent that I submitted most of my books to always told me I was too literary for them. And I never considered myself a literary author. Mm. <laughs> I write commercial, but I think they, they were really into commercial. You know, so I was too literary for them. So I thought that, well, that's kind of a compliment too. <laughs> when you had your your four editors raking over your first book, was uh -huh. that was that a case of too many cooks spoiled the broth? It could have been. It could have been. Uh, the very last editor I had actually got up my nose quite a bit because he dissed my research. And th this is my death game about the first police 
policewoman and he told me that no suffragette would ever be accepted into the police force. No police force would ever accept anyone who had been in prison. And he underlined these things. And I, that really hurt me because I'd done my research on this and the, the early policewomen were voluntary organisations which worked hand in hand with Scotland Yard and they were form, form, formed by the suffragette societies. And Mary Allen, who became the deputy of the Women's Police Service after oh, the first one pulled out, can't remember her name, uh, she went on to be commandant when Margaret Damer, Do Damer Dawson Damer died. Damer Dawson. Damer Dawson? Yes, Margaret Damer Dawson <laughs> died. <laughs> Excuse me while I get dumped out. That's fine, don't worry about it. <laughs> she, she became commandant and she was in the police and in this, this police service, the voluntary force, remember, until the 1940s. And she had been in prison three times. <laughs> wow. So I'm learning so something guy, too. Yeah, this, this guy who said that this was not possible hadn't done his homework. <laughs> Blimey, that, you know, that must be really galling though. Yes, yes it was. Hard to yes. take that, isn't it? Yes, it finished it. It finished the film for me, actually. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. How did we move on from from that? Because that's quite a a, a bit of a bruising and a, a negative experience. Yes, apart from the fact that I'd done so many changes, I actually ruined the book. Mm. So it went into my hard drive, my bottom drawer again, and I started off on my contemporary ones with Night Watcher. Uh, as I say, Night Watcher went round the, the houses and got the rave rejections. Uh, when it didn't take off, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really a Thrawn character. Do you know what Thrawn is? No, I don't. Obstinate. Oh, good for you, yes. <laughs> good for you. Thrawn is a good old Scots word. <laughs> well, you know, I'll, I'll let you into something. My wife is Scottish, and I know uh -huh. many Scottish uh -huh. words, but I've not heard that one. Ah, <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the kind, and you know, so I I then wrote a second one which I called the Screaming Woods. Now again, that one went round the the editors, you know, the, the publishers and the agents. Again, rave rejections, but I put it in for. Well, I forgot to tell you, the Night Watcher won the Pitlochry Award at the Scottish Association of Writers. That's the one that's in the bottom drawer. Uh, Deadwood. Well, it's not Deadwood then, it was the Screaming Woods. I put it in for the SAW and it also won the Pitlochry. And I almost put the first chapter up on the internet because I'd, I had built a website by that time when I suddenly remembered I had put it in for the Dundee Book Prize. And I thought, oh, I can't do this if it's in for the Dundee Book Prize. You know, so I, I just remembered in time. And it actually won the Dundee Book Prize. Wow, now, that's an international book prize as well, and it's for unpublished books. Um, it's been running for quite a few years now. I think I won it in about the third or fourth year of, of its existence. Um, and it was fantastic because you got a lovely award, Crystal Award. You know, it sits on my, a table in my house. You got a £10,000 cheque. Ooh, that's nice. I know. That's very good. <laughs> yes, and you also got a publisher. Oh, wow. So that was my breakthrough book. But they insisted I change the title. I called it The Screaming Woods. It went through three titles with the publisher before they decided on Deadwood. And that is Deadwood now. So that one was the one that won the prize. So that would, so it actually had won two prizes. So that, that was brilliant. So let me just get the But I think I've won all the prizes. Yeah, that's, I know uh -huh. there's nothing left for anybody else now. You've got them all, Chris. 
<laughs> I can't put any more in because I'm no longer eligible because I've won them all. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to find a new one now. To, to, to... I know. Oh, that's really good, though. I mean, you know, congratulations on that. But but to get the chronology right, so you you won the International Book Prize. Yes. Was that before the the first book being published, or was it still sitting in the drawer? I had. I. They were all sitting in the drawer that time, and I'll tell you a wee snippet. Is the week. When I won, they they don't work it this way now. They announced the winners prior, but they didn't at that time. When I won it, there was a moratorium on anyone knowing I had won it. So nobody had to know until the actual launch. And the week of the launch, I got my final rejection from Lewis. (laughs) Guess who felt like thumbing their nose? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. No, Deadwood was my first published book. It's, it's the second book in the Dundee Crime series, but it was my first published book. So how, how does that, that work? They must, be, they must be self-contained then, are they, if, if, that, if the second one went first? Yes, yes, they are. Uh, now, they, they, they're a series, I think, because I use the same police force. Now, they're the Dundee Crime series. They're not the DS Murphy series, Bill Murphy series, which a lot of people think they are. They are the... Dundee Crime series. And the reason they're not the DS Bill Murphy series is because the police are secondary characters. Uh My main characters are victims, perpetrators, you know, whatever, but not the police. But I use the same police personnel in each book because if you're basing them in Dundee, it doesn't make sense to alter the police force each time. No, you haven't got a lot of choice, have you, in Dundee? So my first book, Night Watcher, my main character is Julie, and she is a woman with revenge on her mind. Her husband has been murdered, although everyone thinks it's suicide, and she blames it on the woman he left her for, and she stalks the woman he left her for. Uh, But there's another stalker in town as well, and he's a bit unhinged. (laughs) So basically that's a revenge novel, a stalking novel, a revenge novel. Um... With murder in it, of course. I always thought Dundee looked such a nice place. I know. <laughs> and all this is going on. <laughs> but Deadwood, Cara is my main character, and she's a single parent. And she is being chased by gangsters because her... Now, you'll, this is a Scotch word as well. Her bidian. Do you know what a bidian is? Draw, I, have, have I been married to a Scot for... Uh, have I been living together? <laughs> 33 years we've been together. I haven't heard either of those words. <laughs> a bidian is, is what would now be known as a partner. Oh, never heard of that one. Right, I'm going to have to pick her up on this. She hasn't yes. educated me sufficiently. <laughs> but anyway, her her partner has left her, cleaned out her purse, left her, and the two gangsters, the first scene in the book is her being held by the neck by the two gangsters looking for their money. And, of course, she has no money. So she has promised to get it. So she's gone out on the game to earn the money and gets picked up by a serial killer, as you do. <laughs> And taken to Templeton Woods. Now, Templeton Woods in Dundee is notorious for two murders that took there about 30, between 30 to 40 years ago. And they were never solved. So my murders are in Templeton Woods as well, but they're nothing to do with the original ones. Uh, So she's taken there, but she managed, you know, when I was writing the book, I didn't intend her to escape, but these characters take over and they tell you what they want to do and she escaped. And of course, after that, it's a question of, you know, she's being chased by the gangsters, the serial killer's trying to find her because she knows who he is, you know, and it just takes off from there. It's a kind of a, a, a cross between a police procedural and a woman in jeopardy book. 
have the um, tourist information office in Dundee been in touch with you uh, about <laughs> about this? <laughs> because um, it's such a nice, quiet place. I thought, but um... <laughs> not when I'm there. <laughs> no, it's like midsummer murders, isn't it? You know, it's, uh... yeah. <laughs> I think you've been really canny. You know, very, very canny by having the the police um, personnel. Um, mm. as the repeated characters but not the central characters because yes. you could go on forever with that that's very canny I think yes 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 you can have it you can have you know they're standalones as well as series yes, yes. although the police do have their life you know mm. Mm. no I like I like that I think that's a clever idea um, yeah uh, very nice now you, you've written a lot of historical works and then you know here we are doing uh, crime yeah and quite gritty crime by the sounds of it too mm-hmm. Um which do you prefer, or could you quite freely switch between the two? I like both. I can switch between the two. Um, I, at the moment, I'm writing historical uh, because I've just published my, my new book, which is Devil's Porridge, uh, and it's using my first policewoman in Dundee again. But she's not in Dundee at that point. It's two years before that, and she's at Gretna. Now, Gretna's just up the road from me because I'm in Carlisle. Mm. Ah, well, Devil's Porridge is based mainly at Gretna. It starts off in London with the Silvertown explosion. Now, it's a mix of, you know, in my books, I try to bring the fact, the factual stuff in, but I make, you know, I, I build the fiction around it. And the Silvertown explosion really did take place. And it took place in January 1917. So I start off with that and a murder that takes place and saboteur in the explosion and a a young girl who actually sees him escaping and wonders why her friend isn't with him because she knew they were meeting and the friend is lying strangled in the in the factory. (laughs) So she sees him. So after that, and of course, I bring Kirsty Campbell, who is my policewomen they come in to kind of help mop up in Silvertown you know I have a couple two or three chapters round about the Silvertown explosion but and then I take them all to Gretna because in January 1917 the Ministry of Munitions um, recruited the policewomen to work in Gretna it's a munitions factory now Gretna is not like your a munitions factory you would think you knew. Uh, you think of a big building, don't you? A big factory building. Yes. Or buildings. Yes. yes. That's what you think. Gretna was nine miles long and two miles wide. And it was separate buildings and parts of buildings and, you know, everything within that bit. They built the actual factory buildings in well they weren't hollows but they made them hollows because they built kind of mounds around them so that if there was an explosion it was contained within that bit so they did the devil's porridge at the east rig's end and they did the cordite at the um, is it moss band just just before you come to carlisle at that end Mm -hmm. it stretched all the way now I bet you don't know what devil's porridge is. Well, do you know what? My wife explained it to me uh, recently. Isn't it some... Because we passed it, actually. We, we came from the back road from Annan. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. we passed... There's a there's actually a little museum, isn't there, for the devil's porridge? That's right. It's marvellous. And it's, isn't it an explosive of some, some kind? Is it something like... Is that devil's porridge? Devil's porridge is gun cotton and nitroglycerine. Yeah. And they combine it and knead it with their bare hands, like kneading a loaf, you know? Yeah. Uh, until it look until it's an, into a kind of a porridge consistency. It's a paste, and they do it in lead tubs, which are soldered with lead because they can't use 
metal, of course, because it would cause an explosion. The munitionettes couldn't drop anything in it. They weren't allowed hair grips, buttons, anything, because if anything dropped into the mix while they were netting it, it would explode. Mm-hmm. So that was the, and it was Arthur Conan Doyle who coined the phrase in December 1916, and he went to inspect the factory, and he watched these munitionettes, and he wrote an article for the Annandale Observer after it, talking about the munitionettes and saying they were making their devil's porridge. So I thought that is a fantastic name for a book. <laughs> it is a good name for a book, isn't it? Because we, we've passed yeah, a little brown yeah. sign to it for years. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I didn't even know what it was. And I, you know, I lived just up the road from it. You need to go in and have a look. It's, it's, it's marvellous. Yeah, well, I, I will then on your recommendation because we, I didn't even know that, I didn't even know what it was. So um, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, now you, that's sort of two reasons to go now. So yes, we'll, we'll get yeah. up there and have a look. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you, you've, you've done, you've done brilliantly from, from, no writing and just loving books to, you know, yeah. to getting these books published but <laughs> but you you you're you're very uh, dominant in sort of indie circles aren't you so what what makes you consider yourself an indie well i was with a traditional publisher with deadwood um and quite honestly i much prefer being indie i got my right i got my rights back to deadwood about a, a year ago because they put it out of print didn't bother to tell me uh, and of course i always Produce my, produce my own publicity stuff. So I just ordered 500 postcards when I discovered they'd put it out of print. Oh, dear me. <laughs> because they didn't provide any promotional material. Um, so, you know, I, I looked at, I went to Society of Authors because a, according to my contract, I had to wait a year after it went out of print to make sure they weren't going to print it again before I get it back. But I did get it back before that because I got the Society of Authors onto them. Um, but I much prefer being indie. I like the control. I think I might be a control freak. <laughs> uh, I do like the control. I like being in, in, you know, I like knowing what's going on. I never knew what was going on when I was with a publisher. I mean, they decided the cover. They decided the title. Um they decided everything, apart from having written the book. <laughs> uh, and I much prefer to, to do the whole thing myself, because you can outsource all the things that they provided for you. You can outsource editors, you can outsource covers. You know, I do my own formatting, because I'm, you know, I'm quite good at that kind of thing. But if I wasn't good at it, I would outsource that as well. Because, I mean, that's interesting you say about the formatting, because I found a little little line on your bio saying... Um, you confess to being a techno geek who builds computers right. in your spare time, yes. which I yes. thought was a wonderful little line to add to, um, you know, to a bio. Um, so do you? You're, you're a geek, are you? Yes. This computer you're talking to me on, I built myself. Oh, really? Oh, that's yes. impressive. What, from, from, from bits and pieces and, and metal box, the metal yes. box. Yes. Wow. Yes. It's not any cheaper than going to Curry's or PC World to buy a computer, but you, you get the quality components and you know what's inside. How impressive. Where did you learn to do that? <laughs> or shouldn't I ask? <laughs> I'm a curious person. <laughs> uh, initially, I started upgrading. You know, doing things like maybe putting in a, you know, a new sound card or a graphics card or putting more memory in. And then I thought, you know, you know, it, it's a confidence thing. You don't think you can do it. So I saw again, a night class to build computers. The first one I went to was hopeless. They only told you about MS-DOS and things like that, which I knew all about already. Uh, but the second one I went to in Arbroath uh, was really, really good. They gave you a computer, a box, and they said, right, draw everything that's inside. Now take it all to pieces and put it all back again. 
And, you know, it was just getting over the fear. It's getting over the fear of opening the box and going inside and then getting over the fear of actually taking the stuff out and putting it back in again. So once you've done that, you know, it's child's play. Well, you know, I'm going somewhere with this, Chris, because do not think that that um, your your attitude to building computers is the same attitude that helps you enjoy and flourish as an indie author. I think you've got it. I think you've hit it on the nail there. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, again, the throne bit comes in. I don't like anything to beat me. I like to, to know what I'm dealing with. I like to know what, you, like the computer, I like to know what's inside the box. Yes. Uh, and like publishing, I like to know how it works. And I think, you know, I'm pretty well down the road with that. Well, I'm very, I'm very impressed. I've never met somebody who builds their own computers before. You know, not, not, not who wasn't, you know, some, some geek uh, at Microsoft or something. So that's very impressive. Um, especially, especially not someone who looks like your granny with grey hair. <laughs> no, it's it's wonderful. I love, I love to hear things like this. Um, it's, uh-huh, it's a uh-huh. great inspiration. It's brilliant. Um, the other thing I spotted when I was, I, you know, doing my my research is that you've got a qualification in criminology, um, which sets right. you up very nicely for the books. Yes, yes. Uh, I did that. I did a, an open university degree in my midlife uh, because when I was at school, I left at 15 and I thought I didn't have a brain, you know, as you do. Uh, and in midlife, I started to do na- night classes again. There's a theme here, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I enrolled for the open university. Again, I think it was in the third year after it started, something about threes. Uh, and I got a BA degree. Now, when I did my criminology, I did it at Angus College. It was a college course, but it was part of a degree course as well. But the problem was that I already had the sociology degree, and it was part of a sociology degree. So I settled for the criminology certificate. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Uh, the, the experience is still good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because the the other thing I'm getting from you here, um, and I think this is another important quality for an indie author, is that voracious mm-hmm. appetite to keep on learning. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I, I like challenges. I like new things. I mean, I've been like that most of my life. I, I did a, a talk about uh, indie writing the other day at the Carlisle Borderlines Festival. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know that when I tell people what you've got to do, uh, the marketing, mm-hmm. you know, I do the formatting like you myself yeah. and all the work, you can see yeah. people thinking, hang on, you know, I thought it was going to be easier than that. I thought I was just going to upload a document <laughs> and off I was good to go. And, and, and actually, you've got to have quite an appetite, haven't you, I think, to be an indie author. Yes, yes, yes. The other thing that about me is I'm a workaholic, but I'm also a perfectionist. I don't like to put anything up there that is not right. <laughs> you know, there's so much, you know, pe- as you say, people who are, were in your audience think it's just a question of uploading a file. That file for me has to be perfect before it goes up. Yes, absolutely. You've got to get it as, as good as you possibly can. Yeah. That means editors yeah. and proofreaders and all sorts. Yes, yes, yes. And I think you're in a very interesting position because you, you've had what many indie authors aspire to, which is to be traditionally published. And yet you've turned your back on it and you've said, actually, yeah. I, I want to go indie. So what are the pressing reasons yes. to be an indie for you with, with the experience that you've got? The control thing, uh, being in charge. Uh, I mean, quite honestly, if a, a publisher was coming to me tomorrow and saying they wanted to publish, I wouldn't 
I would say no, unless, of course, they were offering me millions, <laughs> in which case it might be quite tempting. Yes, yes. <laughs> but no, I, I much prefer, because I find you, you're, you're kind of on the edges when you, you're with a traditional publisher. Maybe the big authors are not, but certainly if you're a middleist author, you are on the edges. You never know what's going on. Um, they make the decisions, and that's not me. I, I like to make my own decisions. I hear this time and time again, Chris, that the middleisters get no attention and forgotten and it's the sort of Stephen Kings that, that that get all the publicity and the marketing materials and things like that and and that that was your experience then as a traditional author oh yes I mean I, I got some exposure when when I published Edward first because of course it won the Dundee Prize so I got about a fortnight three week exposure promotion and then it all went flat and dead um, and there was nothing uh, I got no promotional materials as I say I bought my own postcards because you know I wanted the book to be successful now a friend of mine tells me that most new authors only sell about 350 copies and I think that's why people are finding it very, very difficult to break into publishing now, because publishers want to make money. They're not interested, well, they are interested in the quality of the book, but above all, they want to make money. That's very interesting. But, but surely, Chris, by this stage, having been traditionally published, you were a millionaire already, weren't you? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the perception, isn't it? That, that people think you've made it when you're traditionally published. I <laughs> I'm afraid I spend a lot on my, some people would call it hobby. I mean, I go to umpteen conferences, which cost quite a bit. Um, I wouldn't say I make a great profit. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but again, you, you know, it allows me to go to conferences. I move around. I, I buy things. You know, if I wanted a new computer because I needed it for my writing, I would buy it. You know, but I'm, I'm not making a great profit. And but, I don't but, think many people make a great profit, apart from the Stephen Kings and the WK Rowlings and so forth. And of course, that, if you're a middle... Sorry? Sorry, if that, that applies also, Chris, as, as an indie author, does it? Do you, do you make more from being indie than you did as traditional? I did. I do, yes, yes. Um, although I'm not making a fortune, I do make more than I did as a tra traditional. One of the things being traditional is you got your royalty uh, statements every year. But I could never understand them. And, of course, they always kept money back for returns. You know, if you'd sold a 1,000 books, they would keep 500 of those back. You know, the, the, the royalties are 500 of those back in case of returns. So you really never saw much money coming from the royalties if you're mid-list. Um, and, again, mid-list authors, if they're not making enough money for the publishers, they lose their contracts. They don't get taken on again. Um, quite a few of my friends lost their contracts. You know, writers who were publishing... I mean, I have a friend who published 20-odd books uh, in historical crime, uh, and he was really, really popular, sells a lot in America, and he was dropped. I have another friend who writes romantic fiction. Again, she was quite big, and she was dropped. You know, because they just weren't making quite enough money for the publishers. Wow. I mean, this is really educational for me, Chris. Yeah, I've not yeah. heard anybody tell this story before uh -huh. on the podcast. So this is very, uh -huh. very informative, I think, for yeah. people who are aspiring to uh, traditional publishing. <laughs> and remember what I said about going out of print. They didn't bother to tell me I was out of print. Wow. So you're the last person in the line to know anything. 
I, I tell you the other thing that has shocked me a little bit from what you've just said is the the returns. Um, this is the first thing I learned when I went on Ingram Spark that, that yes. people want not only massive discounts, but mm-hmm. they expect you to foot the bill if they pull them and don't want them. And you think, what? Yes. Yes, yes. I, I don't do returns. I mean, I was caught once by foils because I'd supplied 20 books for a, a conference and they, they wanted to return them. And I just dug my heels in and said, no. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> they were print on demand and they, they were special order. They'd been a special order. Um, so basically, I just refused. Foils will probably never give me another order. But <laughs> I mean, I'm not that worried because I mean, I don't make much when I sell to I mean, I, I, I posted five books to gardeners today. Um, gardeners and Bertrams, of course, are the main distributors in, in the UK. Um, but they need a discount. If you're an indie, you can um, what would you say, talk to them and kind of negotiate your discount. Uh, but the normal discount is something like 55 60% is what they expect from a traditional book. I have learned since Foils did that to me to put on the bottom of every invoice I send out. Uh, all sales final, no sale or return policy. Oh, that's a good tip. <laughs> yes. That's a canny Scottish tip. That is. That's a good one. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> They're print on demand. So basically, you know, if they if they order print on demand, they shouldn't need to be returned. But I, I don't really care if I don't get big orders from gardeners and Bertrams because of the discounts. I, I deal with Watersons and Dundee, but I hand deliver them, which means I can give them their 50% discount heart <laughs> yes, yes. but uh, i i take them up i use my bus pass i told you granny with gray hair i use my bus pass and deliver them free so i can give them their 50 percent discount so selling to the bookstores is not all fun and games and i the best way to sell paperback books is hand sell library events fairs book fairs things like that um then you can charge full price. Yes, of course you can. Yes, that's that's so a good, very build, good point. You, you build a, a relationship with your local library so that they will give you these events, you know? So That's, that's very interesting. And then are you getting your books, when you do the paperbacks, are you getting them done through Ingram Spark with the, the Nielsen no. ISBNs? I was getting them through Create Space, and mm-hmm. I had a local printer who was doing my paperbacks but the local printer was using very heavy paper which made them very heavy to post so i'm kind of looking around to see if i can find another printer and i'm currently looking at is it uk um uk well it's been on ali recently uk publishing or something like that it's called ukpublishing.co.uk it's something like that and I'm currently looking at them for a better price because getting them from Create Space you see it's America now that was okay when the pound was at a good rate but with the, the collapse of the pound it's actually increased the cost of my books coming in from America because you not only pay for the the actual paperback printing but you pay shipping as well and it's all priced in dollars What's so the collapse of pound is dire. I, I was under the impression, you see, you're, you're getting Create Space books into Waterstones then, and they've got the Create Space ISBNs on. So how have you managed no, to no, do that? No, Does... no, I buy my own ISBNs. Okay, that's great. Okay, and you put them on Create Space? Yes, yes. Uh-huh, I, I gotcha. only get Create Space to print them for me. They're not my gotcha. publisher. I'm my yeah. publisher. 
Gotcha. Okay. Because Sorry. yeah, because there's a there's a general r- rule of thumb that you don't put Create yeah. Space ISBNs in a Waterstones or a bookshop, isn't there? That's right. Ah, 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 ah. ah right. Okay. No, That's no. How you do it. If you do paperbacks, you're better to buy your own ISBNs, irrespective of who's actually printing your books. Great. That yeah, absolutely. And so um, with Waterstones, you've gone in as a local author to a to effectively a local bookshop, and they've been yes. receptive to that. Yes, yes. Uh, because my books are set in Dundee. I mean, the first time I went up, uh, I, I was actually quaking <laughs> mm, <I laughs> because I, I put two books. I think I only had Night Watcher and Deadwood at that time. And I put the two books in my bag and I went up and I was actually quaking and saying, well, they can only say no. Mm. So when I went up, <laughs> they ordered 20 of each. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> Look at you. I know, I know. So that was okay. But when I do my launches, they usually take about 50 or 60. And I did a launch just last week. Um, So that's okay. And of course, I get repeat orders for them. But as I say, I hand deliver. Can you you get a crowd turning up when you do a signing at Waterstones? Yes, yes. The first time I did a launch, they were standing room only. The past two times, there's been slightly less. Uh, But I mean, I get a good crowd. That's really impressive. Do you, do you use anything to promote that? Do you go on local radio or anything like that? No, no. I just use Facebook and Twitter. And, I, I, you know, if anyone's written to me saying I, they love my books, I just send them an email to say there's a launch coming up. That's really that's really interesting. That's, I've not heard a, um, an indie author yet using you know, their local Waterstones, for goodness sake, in that way. I've heard local bookshops, but not Waterstones. Well, I, I get into local bookshop Montrose as well. Um, but Waterstones, I think it depends on the manager. Mm. You know, I really think it depends a lot on the manager and what their stance in terms of taking books is. I mean, Waterstones take, you know, quite a few authors who publish their own books, uh, a lot of local history books and things like that. I think they do quite a good trade with them. Can I delve a little bit, Chris, into actually how you do your writing? Because it sounds like you're very knowledgeable about the topics you've written about, so that, that I'm hearing research here, uh, mm-hmm. but also about how you actually you know, do the writing. Is it pen and paper? You, I'm assuming it's one of the, a self-built computer. But how, how do you actually do the, the books? Straight into the computer. I... Keyboard into the computer, I do it. The only thing is, if I wake up in the morning with a scene ramping round my head, I'll dive up and grab a piece of paper, uh, scrap paper, and just scribble it down before I forget it. And then it's on the computer later. But normally, it's just straight into the computer. And I think terms... my brain's hardwired to the computer. <laughs> yeah, yes, well, that, that's a good thing to hear. Yeah, and, and then when you've written the book, um, how, how long will it take you? I, I know this is, you know how long is a piece of string but on average how long does it take you to produce a book to get a book about a year about a year this last one took two years because it was a bit more it was a bit more complex quite a large cast of characters um and quite a few subplots running through it so that one took about two years but normally it'll take about a year and what will it um when it leaves you Mm -hmm. what stages do you put it through before you actually get to the publication process I do a lot of editing myself. I do. I look for weasel words. I run it. I, I've recently tried um, Autocrit, which is not bad uh, for picking up kind of you know slow writing and things like that. But normally I, I'll, I'll go through it over and over again, 
uh, umpteen times. I'll read it on screen. I'll read it on Kindle. I'll read it on paper and with the red pen in the hand. I will look for weasel words. I've got a list of weasel words and I'll do a find and search for weasel words. I'll what do, do a find... weasel words? What, what are weasel words? Just, then, that, words like that, only, yes. those kind of words. You yes. know, okay. words where the sentence makes complete sense without them. Yes, yes. I mean, some of the that's you do need and some of the then's you do need. But if you can read the sentence and miss that word out and it doesn't need it, then you take it out. Yeah, I'm a devil for that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So so I do. I go through a lot of kind of motions at that stage trying to, to tighten it up. I'll use a find to look to make sure all my quote marks are closed and my dialogue's clo- opened and closed. Sometimes you find you haven't closed a dialogue. But if you do a search on the the wee twiddly quote mark, you can find them all. But it takes forever. <laughs> it takes forever. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it does. That's a tool. I told you, I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it's got to be right, hasn't it? Yes. After I've got it right, I then put it out to two editors. I've got one who checks for storyline and plot holes. She's marvellous. And I have another one who checks for grammar. I call her the grammar police. She okay. checks spelling and grammar. And she doesn't like... Uh, um, she, she doesn't like semicolons. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. I, I, you know, she, she used to tell me I use far too many of them. She whops them out. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, yeah. y- you've, you've had bad experiences with editors, and it sounds to yeah. me like you get on very well with your editors now. Yes, uh, yes. I had a, 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 an early bad experience with an editor. And now I love my editor. She's just so good. And she, you know, she improves the work and, and I'm yeah. so grateful to her for that. That's important, isn't it, to get the editor's Oh, yes. Right. Yes, yes. You, you really do need editors. If you're going to spend your money on anything, spend it on editors. Um, but the other thing to spend your money on is your cover. Yeah. I mean, when I put my first book up, Night Watcher was the first one I put up myself because Deadwood was still traditional at that time. And I put Night because I thought, well, nobody seems to want Night Watcher. I'll, I'll do the Kindle thing. So I did my own cover because I had no idea how it would do. I didn't know whether it would take off. I didn't know whether it would just sit there and nobody would ever look at it. So I did my own cover. But when it started to sell, I thought, hmm, yeah. So I, I commissioned a cover. And I have a fantastic cover designer, Kathy Helms. She's Avalon Graphics, and she is marvellous. She does lovely covers for me. I always think that um, editors and cover designers mm-hmm. are like hairdressers and dentists. When you find yes. one you like, you stick with them for years. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think you're so quite important. right. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a really important relationship, I think. But it also... It's about making your work, as you said earlier, the, the best it can be. But feeling yeah. like you haven't got some teacher looking at down the end of their nose at you, judging you. But they're at, you've got some a partner, basically a partner to make the work better. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh-huh. I think some of the the editors I had in the past uh, were quite, you know, they quite undermined you in some ways. Yes. Um, but the, the ones I have just now are, are good. Yeah, good to hear. You, you've yeah. also written a um, a non. I say a non-fiction book. It's crime fiction of the indie contribution. Um, That's t- tell me about that book and how that came about. That came about because the, there was an online Edinburgh um, festival. Not the Edinburgh festival that takes place physically, but this was an online Edinburgh festival. And they asked me to be the right... The, I, I was in it... I, contributed to it the first year it ran the second year they asked me to be writer, the crime writer in residence so I 
for, because I was a crime writer in residence, I had to do something every day, you know. So basically what I did was I looked at uh, indie crime fiction. I divided it down into all the different genres of crime fiction you could think of. Um, and I did a post on each so I read the books. I read at least three books for each genre. And then I I wrote a, a post, a blog post, in terms of what I thought of these books. Did they measure up to traditional books or did they not? You know, and basically, you know, the majority of the books did. I mean, I got good books and excellent books. I got very few bad books. So once the festival was finished, you know, people seemed to like all these posts. Uh, and I had put them on Pinterest. And then I went to look at them one day and they weren't there. You know, the, the front page was there, but nothing behind it. And the festival had taken them all down. And people liked them. So I thought, oh, you know, that's a shame. Because, uh, because people were still asking, you know, how they could read them. So I thought, well, I'll put them into a book. So my editor made me write them differently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she said they were too bloggy. Oh, right. <laughs> So I had to rewrite every post to make them not bloggy. Mm -hmm. um, and then I thought, well, you know, I can't just do a book with just, you know, like review. Well, they're not really reviews, they're assessments. Um, so I did the beginning, I, I looked at ebooks, I looked at the history of ebooks, I looked at the history of crime fiction. Um, I looked at e-readers, how, how they arose. So there's a lot of kind of information. And publishing, I looked at the different kinds of publishing there. So there's a lot of kind of factual information about indies at the beginning. And then I go on to the actual assessment of the books. And I've got cozies, I've got traditional, I've got police procedurals, I've got paranormal, I've got psych. You know, I've got the whole lot, you know, in there. And I read 91 books. Oh, my goodness, to get those the medal. Yes, 91 indie books. Now, the only books I had to scrap, I, I've said right at the beginning of the book, you know, if I came across a book that I felt didn't measure up, I was not going to read it any further and I wasn't going to include it. Um, so I only scrapped four books. And you'll never guess which category they came into. No, police procedurals. Police oh, procedurals. Really? Written by policemen. Because oh, really? I thought... When I went to look at police procedurals, I thought, well, I'll go for the ones written by policemen. Big mistake. <laughs> I oh. think they were written like reports. Now, oh, right. I should have known because I was a social worker and one of the things I had to battle against was not writing like a report. Uh, I can't write, you, you know, it would be, in one sense, it would be easy for me to have a social worker as a main character. But I, I've tried and I can't do it because when I start to put a social worker in as a main character, I start writing reports. Yes, I'm not writing fiction. Yes. So this is what these police procedurals reminded me of. So I just scrapped them and looked for other ones. And, you know, I filled the book. I mean, as I say, good books, brilliant books. I even have one uh, a chapter on the indie authors who were taken up by publishers who went from indies to traditional and do you find non-fiction easier to sell? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm in the pro. I've got one on my computer just now that I'm in the process of writing in between the, the fictional one, uh, because I did a workshop in March this year at the Scottish Association of Writers, and it was called the Nuts and Bolts of Self-Publishing, and 
that went down very well. In fact, I had great trouble getting the group to actually go out the door at the end. <laughs> <laughs> They're usually and, running when I do presentations, Chris. And, <laughs> and when I looked at, the, you know, I had done all this kind of preparation. And when I looked at my preparation sheets, I'd done them in headings, you know, all the different headings. And I looked at it and I thought, that's the synopsis for a book. <laughs> oh, yes. So the synopsis is in the computer and I'm adding bits as I go, you know. So I don't know whether that one will be any better or not. But, I mean, I don't write books to, well, you do write books to sell them. But, I mean, that's not the be-all and end-all. You write books because you have to write books. Yes. It's like it's like an addiction. I notice on your Amazon author page you've got a couple of um, sort of video trails there. Um, how did they come about and how did you get those done? Videos. I did them myself on YouTube. I did them using the Microsoft, oh God, what do they call the, fo- the movie maker? Video one. Yes, I, I, I did my, uh, Movie Maker and I just read the first chapters. That's a clever I'd way put them up, I put them up on YouTube, but I haven't done it for the last two books. I must do it uh, because I have it for all the others. And I haven't That's put a- them on my website either. I must do that as well. Well, come on, get on with it, Chris. Uh, I know. There's work to be done. Get your finger out. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, that's a nice technique, though. That's a very, you know, without getting into, you know, massive production and budgets or anything yeah. like that, that's a very yeah. good technique, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's, let's move on then, because you've, you've also done, um, you've, you've recently published The, the Death Game, and, and we're now into the Kirsty Campbell character. So t- tell me how that came about and where you're going with this. Kirsty Campbell, she came from my... That, that was the one, remember, that went into the drawer yes. of the death game that yes. got ruined. Well, Devil's Porridge was running around... I wanted to write Devil's Porridge for years, and it was running around in my mind, but I had, I had the death game sitting in the drawer, and at the time I started Devil's Porridge, I thought, which would be quicker to write? And I thought, well, it'd be quicker to rewrite the death game than to start out in a completely new book, and that's why I did the death game first. Uh, but I had to rewrite it because, as I say, I had ruined it, you know, with all the kind of editor's input, do this, do that. One of the editors, the first editor I had told me I didn't, you know, I had put some of Kirsty's background in his backstory and they didn't like that. They wanted it at the beginning of the book. So I put it at the beginning of the book. Didn't get the same editor the next time. The second editor said the crime was too, the, the murder was too far into the book. And that was because I'd done what the first editor told me. <laughs> so I did a prologue putting the crime there. But each time I did something, the next editor didn't like it. You know, it was horrible. So that book, as I say, was completely spoiled. So I pulled it out and I completely rewrote it. The, the plot was there, the characters were there, but I had to actually rewrite it. Um, so it did take me longer than I thought it would, uh, but it, it got out. But the character fascinated me and I found her when I was doing research for my articles, uh, when I was researching the early women police. As I say, they came from the suffragette societies. And I discovered that in 1919, there was one policewoman in Dundee. Now, the only other policewoman in Scotland at that time was Emily Miller in Glasgow, and this Mrs. Thompson in Dundee. So there were two in Scotland. Now, this is 1919. Going back to Devil's Porridge, 1917 at Gretna, there were 156 policewomen based at Gretna in 1917. Mm-hmm. So that gives you an idea. Now, I don't know how many were policewomen were in England, but that was Gretna alone. So you only had the two for the whole of Scotland. You had Mr. Stops Dundee 
and Emily Miller in Glasgow. And I thought, that, that's brilliant. I could have a character. I could have a policewoman in Dundee. She's not Mrs. Thompson. She'll be inspired by Mrs. Thompson, but she's not Mrs. Thompson. She's going to be totally new. So I just built Kirsty Campbell. I had her join the the women police in 1914 at the start of the First World War. Uh, and then I brought her. She was seconded from the Metropolitan Police up to Scotland, to Dundee. And, of course, basically, you know, in a police force which had never had a woman in it, women were, weren't known to be policewomen in Scotland. She had a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's a bit gothic, that one, I think. It's a kind of sacrificial murders and, you know, missing children and, you know, and Kirsty having a hard time with the police force, plus the fact she has parents in Brotty Ferry whom she had fallen out with because of something that had happened in her teens. Do you find that the um, the Scottish backdrop of your books um, helps or hinders the sale? So, for instance, do you sell very well in Scotland but the crossover to England is harder? Or is, do you just not get any sense of that at all? I think I sell a lot locally. I say I sell a lot up here in Scotland. Uh, I'm not sure. I do go. I do sell in England. Uh, I haven't cracked the American market. I, I do sell some books in America, paperbacks and Kindle, but not to the level I sell in the UK. Mm-hmm. Because which is strange. The, mm-hmm. Well, I I, see, I love I, Scotland's got a lovely history. I love Scottish history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just mm-hmm. so macabre and violent, isn't it? It's just it's just so much to work <laughs> yeah. with. I think, but 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 I love it. You know, it's so there's so many lovely stories uh, in, in in Scottish history. Um, but yeah. but I, I, um, but then you've got people like you know Chris, Christopher Brookmeyer, for instance, who, who's huge. You've got some huge Scottish um, writers um, as, as yeah. well. <laughs> Christopher Brookmeyer was the judge when I won the Scottish Association of Writers but Lockery Award. He he was the judge of that. So he's quite a favourite of mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he writes a good book, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where where are you going next then with your writing? What's your, your game plan? My game plan at the moment, I've started another Kirsty book, so that's another historical. But after that, I think I'm going to have to do another contemporary because people are crying out for them. So um, more more writing, more fiction, uh, 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 maybe mm-hmm. a little bit more non-fiction and yeah. definitely indie. Yes, yes, yes. And that's the beauty of being indie. You can please yourself. If you're with a publisher, you're put into a little box. If I had still been with a publisher, I'd still be writing contemporary crime and the historical ones wouldn't be there. And you'd keep having to re-edit everything too, by the sounds of it, from your past experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're all over the place on, on the web, Chris. Could you just give us uh, an indication of the best places to go to find out more about you online? To find out, uh, well, I suppose my own website, um, www.chrislongmuir.co.uk is the best place. I mean, I've got my bio on there. I've got all my books. That, you know, I've got a whole set of tabs that takes you into anything you want. Um, so I think you'll find quite a lot there. I've also got um, a blog, and that's chrislongmuir.blogspot.co.uk. Um, at the moment, I've been putting up several kind of historical posts about the background of Gretna, uh, interspersed with other posts, but I kind of go around the houses, you know, in terms of just what takes my fancy goes on the blog. Uh, and I, of course, I've got a 
Twitter name at Chris Longmuir. It's all Chris Longmuir. In fact, if you Google Chris Longmuir, I think you'll find all my stuff comes up at the top of the page. Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. If you're new to self-publishing, you might also like to check out selfpublishingacademy.com, the step-by-step guide to getting your manuscript off your hard drive and into print. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.